0: Before such popular evangelists as Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, and Jerry Falwell, there was Brother David Terrell, an extremely popular charismatic tent preacher whose ministries in the 60s and 70s actually spanned the globe. He was part of a subculture that many of us are unfamiliar with, the Pentecostal Revival Tents, with its spontaneous shouts, faith healings, and followers speaking in tongues. Hi, I'm Valerie Jackson, and my guest today grew up on that revival trail. I'm sure you'll find her story revealing as we go between the lines of Holy Ghost Girl by Donna M. Johnson. Her memoir of traveling the tent circuit and being shaped by constant upheaval and contradictions in her own faith. Donna left Brother David Terrell's ministry at 17. She was, quote, a high school dropout who found redemption in books and the University of Texas, unquote. After studying philosophy and journalism, she eventually spent several years writing about technology and created, wrote, and produced a radio show called Tech Ranch. Donna has written about religion for the Dallas Morning News and the Austin American Statesman. This is her first book, and in 2007, as a work in progress, Holy Ghost Girl won the Mayborn Creative Nonfiction Prize. Donna lives in Austin, Texas, and owns and operates a marketing and advertising firm with her husband, poet and author Kirk Wilson. Donna M. Johnson, author of Holy Ghost Girl, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Valerie. It's a pleasure. Well, as I mentioned earlier, many of us aren't
0: really familiar with the old-time revival tents. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody could tell it any better than you do in that very first paragraph of the book. Would you read that for us, please?
1: This is chapter one. The tent waited for us, her canvas wings hovering over a field of stubble that sprouted rusty cans, A&P flyers, bits of glass bottles, and the rolling tatter of trash that migrated through town to settle in an empty lot just beyond the city limits. At dusk, the refuse receded, leaving only the tent, lighted from within, a long, golden glow stretched out against a darkening sky. She gathered and sheltered us from a world that told us we were too poor, too white trash, too black, too uneducated, too much of everything that didn't matter, and not enough of anything that did. Society, or at least the respectable chunk of it, saw the tent and those of us who traveled with it as a freak show, a rolling asylum that hit town and stirred the local holy rollers, Baptists, Methodists, and even a Presbyterian or two into a frenzy. Brother Terrell reveled in that characterization. Mm. So tell us, was it really that way?
0: As a child growing up, how did you become a part of of this family, of, of Terrell's family?
1: When I was three, and my brother was one, my mother signed on with David Terrell's ministry to play um, the giant concert Hammond organ that he had for the revivals. Um, my mom was probably I think twenty around twenty five then, twenty four, and brother Terrell was about twenty seven, and he had a young they were young, they were so young, and they had a he had a young family, a wife, and two children, um just a little bit older than my brother and I.
0: Now, was this Randall and Pam? Randall and Pam okay. who are in the book. Mm-hmm.
1: And um, we traveled with the Terrells and with his, um, what he called the evangelistic team. And at that time, the tents were modest compared to what they would become. Um, one tent would would uh, seat between 25 and 3,500 people. And that was the smaller tent. And And Brother Terrell was considered a, a real comer, if you will, on the revival circuit. The older evangelists were had succumbed to their own human frailties or bankruptcy or health problems because it was a very grueling schedule that they kept. And so he was, um, he was the rising star, and many of the older preachers were telling him, oh, you can't do this, nobody can do this anymore, because the healing revivals really had their heyday.
0: And this is like about, what, in the 50s this or would be, 60s we, or what?
1: My mom signed on in the uh, in 1960, mm-hmm. and the healing revivals really had their heyday in the 40s and were declining in the by the time the 50s rolled around.
0: Mm-hmm. So, tell me about the tents because that was the scene. You talked about how they raised the tents, and then and you were probably what about four, five, six mm-hmm. years old. And what perspective from a child's eye did you see when all that was going on?
1: Well, I was uh, we we traveled in the early years. I was between the ages of three and six and um you know i loved the tent i mean i don't and i st- i have to admit i still have a weakness you know if i see those tents i just they feel like home to me because we traveled so often every 3 to 6 weeks in those days the tent was the only thing that felt like home and i you know i knew a lot of the people there and um, so when you
0: traveled like that, where would you stay? Uh, hotels, motels or what? Or Sometimes we would
1: stay in later years. We stayed in little those little saggy um, cinder block motels, you know. But in the earlier years, when the revivals were longer, we did we usually had a rental property, a trailer. Uh, we would often all rent a house and that would be the Terrell family, my mother and my brother and I, and then the song leader and his wife. We would all live in uh, very close quarters with each other. And then there would be the folks who traveled with the tent and did the, the physical labor of putting it up, you know. And there would be usually three to four men, and churches would send folks out. And they would, first of all, they would dig these holes and put the giant center poles in. They would hook these poles to up to um, the backs of semi-tractor trailers and pull them into the ground and they, once those poles were up, they would fasten, they would unroll the canvas, and then they would begin to there would be men stationed at the center poles, and all together they would, um, they would turn the handles on the, on the poles, and the tent would slowly rise. Mm-hmm. And when it reached uh, about It's about waist height. Other men would scramble underneath like little gnomes and sort of push up the secondary poles that had been laid on the ground like pickup sticks underneath. They would raise those poles and push them up, and then the men would continue cranking the tent up. And, um, so there was a whole science
0: almost to there it. There was. It was It was Process. really a construction project, mm-hmm. and
1: it actually required sometimes between 20 and 30 people, and most of those people were volunteers from churches, or families that devoted their life to traveling with us.
0: Well, you you just mentioned some churches would sometimes send workers out. Who came to these revivals? Members of other churches already, or were they people that didn't have churches,
1: or... Well, in the very earliest days, in the early 60s, it it was, you know, Pentecostals, primarily Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalians, occasionally, you might have an occasional Episcopalian or Presbyterian. So people would come to the revivals and they would support the revivals. It was mostly, I will say, uh, in many cases, very, very poor people.
0: So was it like a homecoming
1: type thing almost? Sometimes churches would have these, what you would call homecoming,
0: because I'm trying to... Envision why someone would come to a tent revival as opposed to just attending their regular church services.
1: I think that's a very good question, and I think they went to those tent revivals because, in general, those men were very charismatic preachers. They were not—they were not your pastor. I mean, they and you know, in the fifties and the early sixties, before television had such a huge uh, grip on the country, I mean, the tent sometimes it was the only show in town mm. you know i mean we have so much media we're media saturated now but you know if you were really really poor and you wanted something to do there was this revival and you would go and the music would be the music was fabulous you know there were tambourines and guitars and my mom playing the the Hammond and so it wasn't like a boring kind oh, of oh <laughs> no people the the song services uh, and there were choruses that they sang and no one passed out any songbooks everyone somehow knew the choruses and they would get to singing and they would sing for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours before Brother Terrell ever even came on the scene. And the longer the music went, the happier these people got. And they would begin to, you know, you would see them when they came in. They would look worn out and tired and sad sometimes. And as the music played on, there, it was as if their cares just They were able to shed their cares and they would just begin to dance Mm. and laugh and they were all dancing there together and they would stomp the ground so hard. Uh, The ground was covered with sawdust and they would stomp on it and dance on it so hard that the air would be filled with dust. Mm. And there would be these you know, crowds of people, 25 to 3,500 people, and later larger in the late 60s and early 70s, blacks and whites, by the way, which was, you know, worshiping together. And I have to say, and going back to write the book, going back through my memories, you know, in many ways it was a hard childhood and I pushed away many of the memories for a long time, but those, that feeling of being under the tent, blacks, whites, poor, middle class, um, the few middle class people that came in the early days and everybody praying one prayer and thinking one thought, it was just utterly transcendent, mm. it was utterly transcendent.
0: So what was it about David Terrell that was so captivating? Why were people why did they adore him and revere him so much?
1: I've really thought about that quite a lot and you know who knows what really makes somebody's personality grow that large, but I I'll give you some of my thoughts and you know uh, number 1 he was quite handsome. Uh he was movie star handsome. He had um cornflower blue eyes mm-hmm. um and he had Black hair, and he had this flash of a smile that was just dazzling. And he had a very generous spirit and tender heart, and that came across. And he was able somehow. He was very charismatic on stage, and able to connect one on one with people in these giant crowds. Now he was also from a very poor background, share uh, uh, sharecroppers. Northern Alabama, Georgia, sharecroppers. He dropped out of school in third grade because he had bone cancer. And so he wasn't an educated man. He was very bright, but he wasn't educated. And so when these people came, they saw this better image of themselves up in front of them. You know, he was poor. He talked just like they talk. He didn't He didn't prettify his language. He didn't worry about subject-verb agreement. What he was interested in was lively language and connecting with you. And so they came and they saw this more glorious image of themselves, you know. And I, I think that meant a lot. They saw that they could be successful. He was sort of them without the hopelessness and without the shame of poverty. And people reacted to that. And he, he really genuinely loved people. At least in those early days, I think that was very much a part of who he was.
0: Now, there was a lot of faith healing that went on in these uh, revivals. Did you ever personally witness what you really believed might have been a miracle?
1: Well, I, you know, the I, as you know the book is full of miracles. One happened when I was 3, which we could all question. It was a woman whose stomach was huge and she had a tumor and it just he prayed for her and her skirt just fell down. Now, I was 3 years old, so I do believe we're programmed uh to see what we're taught to see in many ways. But later, when I was questioning um Brother Terrell and his whole uh ministry and perspective on the world, I had been away from the revivals for some time, uh, and I I missed my family. I was away from my family then, too, and I just, you know, the revivals were home, and I missed that environment, and I came back um, in San Antonio, Texas, and before the service started, it was in an auditorium, I met this young mother, and she was with a, a boy who was maybe seven to nine, somewhere in there. And uh, he was obviously deaf, could not hear, and she told me so. And she wanted to know how the healings worked because she had never been to a revival. Her neighbors had told her that Brother Terrell was a healer. And so I told her what might happen. Sometimes he walked through the audience and called people out. Other times he called prayer lines. And uh, so I told her what to expect. And sure enough that day, Brother Terrell called her out of the audience and prayed for her son And he had this theatrical thing he did where he would stand behind the deaf mute and clap his hands. And, and, you know, if they could hear, they whirled around, that sort of thing. Or sometimes he would tell them to say mama or papa or that sort of thing, and they would do it. Well, after the service was over, I was driving out of the parking lot, and I noticed the woman and her son sitting, waiting on a bus. And uh, the little boy was uh, moving his head from side to side, left to right, left to right, in a very sort of smooth, rhythmic motion. And I asked her what he was doing, and she said, and she was very emotional. She said that he, um, he was listening to the traffic, that he had never heard it before. Mm. Now, there are many ways we could look at that, you know, but it was a, um, a, that seemed to me, having met him before, he seemed to me to really be deaf. And then, of course, I experienced a miracle myself later on in life.
0: Can you share that with us?
1: I will um I had been away again um i went I bounced in and out for for some years before I finally, in my later teen years left and um i was um had decided I didn't really want any part of this um what was going on at the time, it was becoming very cult like and i it seemed to be- to me it seemed to be becoming very dark and something that it had not been in the early years, so I left, but I became very ill. And um, the docs didn't really know what was wrong with me. And um, I'm not a large woman now. And I dropped, I was probably dropped 30 pounds from the weight I am now. And that's quite thin. And um, I was ill. I went to the revival. And he called me out of the audience. He did know I was sick. So there is that. But he called me out and I was with a boyfriend. And he Put his hands on the head of the boyfriend, and the boyfriend went down like a felled tree. I've never seen, he was a large man, I've never seen anyone hit the ground like that. No, he did not break his fall at all, and he was out. And just out, he was not, uh, he was unconscious. And not from the fall, but we used to call it being slain in the spirit. And then Brother Terrell laid his hands on me, and I began to just weep, and I I could not really hear or see anything i it was as if I was I was in a state of deep meditation. Um, I was there but I was not there and when I came to the boyfriend was getting up I didn't even hear the prayer but I was the next day I was healed and I was healed I remained healed for ten years and then um, my mother told me a new piece of news about sort of another level of betrayal because my mother was betrayed by brother Terrell. She was um, involved with him and, and he betrayed their relationship. And when she told me that, even though I had been probably 10 or 15 years away from the ministry at that time, I just felt another level of faith that I didn't even know was still there, fall away from me. I felt it. And the next day I was ill Mm. and I, you know, I have, um, I take medicine, and they they now know what it is, and they can control it, but they really didn't then. And um, So, but in your mind,
0: though, it wasn't so much a um, progression of a disease or the reoccurrence of this disease in your body as it was having to do with your faith?
1: It was, and, you know, many people say, well, of course, it wasn't Brother Terrell healing. It was God through him, true believers, and, and believers will still say that. For me, raised to revere him, and then he became a sort of stepfather to my brother and I, he was the focus of my faith. And when I no longer had faith in him, um, the healing was mm-hmm. reversed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really, there are many ways to look at that, Valerie, and I know that. There, some people think it's faith healing and it's God. Some people think people like Brother Terrell are intuitives who can heal. Uh, some people think it's the mind body connection, which is tends to be where I fall these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do believe that belief and faith are truly are utterly mysterious things and very powerful in subtle ways that we don't really understand.
0: I'm talking with Donna M. Johnson about her book Holy Ghost Girl. You indicated earlier that your mother had had a relationship with um, with Terrell. Um she several times left you with others while she traveled with him. Um seven households in 3 years I think you said that mm-hmm. you 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 uh, had been to. Biblical number. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So how did your mother justify uh being with Terrell and uh, especially after she found out about for instance uh, the other women and some of the other things that Terrell had been involved in?
1: Well, early on, I believe my mother justified, um, in fact, I know she did, leaving my brother and I. My mother would just cry and cry when she left us, and we would cry as well. Um, but we all believed that our God required of you, required you to give up the things that you loved and needed most. And my mother, you know, believed that, they all believed that the world was coming to an end, that it was imminent. And as... Um, you know, born again, um, um, holy roller Pentecostal, um, believers, they believed that they were commissioned to go out and save all the souls they could from hellfire before, uh, the world ended. And so that's, that's the justification from inside the belief system. Um, you know, my mother was also involved and very much in love with Brother Terrell. So it's kind of hard to separate those two things. And when you get uh, true love and God all mixed up together, mm-hmm. that's a pretty powerful yeah. combination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in later years, my mother certainly um, told me that she had done the wrong thing and that she was very sorry. And she came, um, We, be, my brother and I began to live with her, I think I was age nine. And she has told me that she was you know, she, at one point she said, You know, I just, someone should have just whipped me. I, what was I thinking? But, you know, my mom was the daughter of a backwoods Pentecostal preacher who, you know, who taught her that God required the ultimate sacrifice. At 16, you left
0: the Terrellites for the first time.
1: What, what pushed you to do that? Well, the Terrell's um, ministry had become quite dark. He um, was prophesying um, more than ever the end of the world. Um, his followers were moving out into the middle, in, in, into moving to little backwaters all across the U.S., uh, mostly in the South.
0: Which is what he had told them that they needed to do. Right. He to do told them that he to need, they need to go needed. to these blessed areas that, that they would be safe in. Okay.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. If, they, if they would leave the city, sell everything they had, give it to him, leave the cities. Um, learn how to grow their own food and get off the grid, if you will, that 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 would be the way to survive the coming in time. And um, also, you know, weird things were happening. He was more and more a prophet figure. Uh, He had more and more ultimate uh, control over the congregation. They did whatever he told them to do. He would rip his clothes and say, this is what God's going to do to America uh, if you don't, um, if America doesn't repent he was taking beatings, um, literally on stage, and um, and you know he was doing all of this, and I knew of his betrayal of my mom, and I knew about the other women,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um,
0: about his hypocrisy. About
1: his mm-hmm. hypocrisy, and I yet I believed in him, so I didn't know what to do yeah. about that, and I just really couldn't handle the dissonance in my own head any longer just created so much noise in my thinking.
0: Well, the locals blamed Terrell for bringing in homosexuals, blacks and hippies into their communities. And as a matter of fact, there is a historical relevance um, uh, about this with respect to the blacks' um, intent revivals in that uh, blacks and whites worship together, Mm -hmm. albeit separately three feet apart on different Mm -hmm. isles. But uh, talk about that in terms of, Quote unquote civil rights, or was it even related to civil
1: rights? It was and it wasn't. I mean, he, um, many of the tent revivalists that came through would have blacks and whites worship together. But when they got to the South, they would seat them in separate areas because they, you know, you were taking life and limb in hand if you did not. Because the Ku Klux Klan was the, the check, clan, checking you out, too. They were checking you out. And these are the early days of the civil rights movement. Um, one particular time was at the beginning of the the uh, Freedom Rides and Brother Terrell was beaten pretty badly. And um he actually insisted on seating blacks and whites together just because he was hard-headed and um he wasn't particularly enlightened about the races except that he was. I mean he believed that people had a right to worship together. He wasn't necessarily a civil rights activist. After he was beaten, he um and he was actually beaten several times. He did um, seat blacks and whites for a very short time in separate sections of the tent. So he, in some ways, uh, prefigured uh, integration in that way. And and the tent revivals were one of the few places, if not the only place in the South, where um, the races actually could come together. Well,
0: Brother Terrell, I went online and checked him out. He's still preaching, 85 years old or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. and he's still preaching – of course, his tents are a little smaller now. hmm
1: They are well, and and some of them are about the same. Maybe they're like they seat two thousand people, but you might have two hundred or one hundred and fifty people. Mm-hmm. And he is up there. It's as if they are packed. He's up there preaching like a man with his hair on fire. Mm-hmm. He's. It's all he knows. It's who he is. And um and you know I think that in many ways he's put the past behind him. And what else is he going to do? I don't think he knows anything else.
0: So, what's going on right now? What is the future for? Uh, tent revivals and for this rural holiness uh, churches?
1: Well, the tent revivals really are dying out now. I mean, Brother Terrell, I believe, has some tent revivals in the summer, uh, maybe through the fall. Um, but, you know, they aren't anything like they, they once were and very few people even put up tents as large as his small tents now. So those really are, I think, going by the wayside. But um, I mean, it's only a few people in, you know, I mean, I believe he's the only one still going, actually. Yeah. But the holiness churches, mm-hmm. I you know, they're still a part of the South, I believe. I mean, Brother Terrell has tiny little churches, but then there are these tiny little holiness churches where people really do still take care of each other. I mean, they really do. You know, they're, it's a harsh sort of rule-bound religion, but they also, they are very big, large-hearted, generous people who, you know, if somebody needs a car, if one if somebody's got an extra car, they'll give them a car.
0: Bless their hearts. Well, today's tent preachers uh, would be people like, well, a former Oral Roberts who's passed away. And Joel Osteen, um, the son of a faith healer. Mm-hmm. So so what I'm seeing is that we've gone from the huge mega
1: tents now to mega media. That's churches. exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that you, if you look at... Um, if you look at the history, you see that the the charismatic movement of the 1970s, where people uh, the Pentecostal movement sort of found um, uh, purchase, if you will, with mainline religions, that was sort of the beginning of it. And um, the the Pentecostal movement went mainstream, and then you began to have people on t- on television. The the Jesus movement was happening with the in the hippie culture, and I had friends who went to seminary and knew about Brother Terrell. And that was sort of the beginning, um, you know. These 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 uh, preacher personalities began then to transition onto uh, onto TV. They he had a, a, an early offer to be on TV, and then I think they decided that he was just a little bit too far out there for them. He certainly was telegenic, but his message <laughs> was just a little bit too uh, too much out of the mainstream. But there is a direct line. Um, Jimmy Swaggart came from that sort of Pentecostal background. Um, I don't know about Benny Hinn. I'm not so familiar with his background, but Joel Osteen's dad was a temp preacher. So they've just transitioned, and now they can reach even more people. And um, the message is a bit softer than Brother Terrell's, uh, but in some ways it's also very similar. You know, the um, God, is, God is God, and uh, God don't never change, as we used to sing in the old songs. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you so
0: much, Donna, for talking with us today. Donna M. Johnson has been my guest, and she's the author of Holy Ghost Girl, a memoir.
1: Thank you so much, Valerie.
0: Between the Lines is brought to you in part by Jackmont Hospitality and a generous anonymous supporter. We thank you. To learn more about the books and authors featured on Between the Lines, go to our website at wabe.org btl and listen to an archived program. Or check out our suggested reading list for both children and adults. To subscribe to a podcast of the program, go to our website and click on Podcast. Be sure to join us next week for another engaging program because there's always more to learn when you go... Between the Lines. The executive producer of this program is Lois Reitzes. Producer, Marjorie Lancer. Editor and technical producer, Mike Johns. Opening and closing music by Afro Blue. And I'm your host, Valerie Jackson. Between the Lines is a production of 90.1 WABE.